So grateful to have, uh, as we draw uh, to, to a close with the drive-in services, so great to have all of the effort that's been put into it by our technical teams, by Shane out here. And, and uh, they're here early, 6.30 every Sunday. I know you appreciate that. Give them a... Yeah, there you go. Thanks, guys. It's time to wake up our neighbors anyway. So they should be up by now. And uh, just wanted to mention to you out there as well, make sure you've got lots of good air circulation going on the car. Uh, doesn't take much time for heat uh, exposure to creep up on you. We don't, certainly don't want any tragedies out here this morning. So make sure you've got lots of air circulation in your car because you won't realize that it's heating up. As if there aren't enough distractions up here with planes and cars and wind and rain and stuff, motorcycles. Uh, right here in front of me, there's a car with a Go Habs 33 license plate right here in my face this morning. So uh, I've got many, many distractions that, that are uh, upon me today. Well, as you know, the scriptures are filled with God asking questions. Uh, right from the very beginning of the scriptures to Adam and Eve, God asks the question, where are you? And he also asks them, what is this you have done? And then God asked Job a question. Do you have any right to be angry? And he asked Peter a question. Who do you say I am? But perhaps one of the most arresting questions in all of the scriptures, and I would say very timely for us right now is, what are you doing here? God asked that question of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I want you to think through as we look at this sermon today, I want you to, I want you to put your name in that sermon. I want you to be thinking about all that we're doing today. And I want you to put your name in that question. What are you doing here, Rick? As if God is asking you this very question because... At this particular moment, there are, there are a lot of things that are pulling our attention away from God. In fact, um, there's an undercurrent of idolatry that lurks within all of us as we uh, consider our circumstances. Each of us can be idolaters unaware or on the way or in the danger of becoming. And idolatry comes in all shapes, sizes. It masquerades as good things. Gains a stronghold in our life until it reaches stage three or stage four. Rooted in the very fabric of who we are if we're not careful. Idols can be our lives, our jobs, our family, our kids. Can be our ministry. Our expectations can be adventure, money, freedom. The last 16 months, if we're honest with ourselves, have exposed a lot of idols. So, how do you determine what may or may not be an idol in your life? Well, ask yourself this question. Over the past 16 months, what have you missed most? Or what have you fought for most? 
Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 19. The last time we encountered Elijah, a couple of weeks ago, he was legging it out from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. He actually runs more than a marathon. It'd be about 50 kilometers. He runs more than a marathon and outruns Ahab in a chariot all the way to Jezreel. And um, he ends up on Mount, Mount Haran. Mount Horeb, excuse me, which is over 300 kilometers from Jezreel. And God literally asks him, asks, asks him why are you not still in Jezreel? So, both the success and the failure on Mount Carmel, if you remember, he had a great success, successful uh, ministry on Mount Carmel when, when God sent a fireball down and should have proved beyond all doubt that, that the living God is the God of, of the universe. But, ex but that this, both the success and the failure of Mount Carmel exposed a significant flaw in the ministry usefulness of Elijah if things didn't change. And it's common to most of us if we're honest with our lives. And fr quite frankly, it's significantly be put, has been put on display lately. And it's this. Elijah's satisfaction with his life and his ministry, even with God, was all dependent on outcomes going his way. Let me repeat that to you because this is a key fact in understanding what we're looking at today. Elijah's satisfaction with life and with his ministry and even with God was totally dependent on outcomes going his way. And if we're honest with ourselves, regularly that's the same for us. Our satisfaction with God is dependent on him choreographing our lives to be exactly as we hope they will be or as we expect them to be. Now Elijah wanted right outcomes, but he wanted right outcomes more than he wanted a, a right revelation of God. That's what we're going to discover. For Elijah, God is to be who he says he is, in other words, God is to be who Elijah says he is and to do what Elijah says he should do in a way that Elijah expected him to do it. Because we're going to encounter Elijah's grand statement to the Lord. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Really? Then what are you doing here, Elijah? You're supposed to be in Jezreel not on Mount Horeb. So if you're, if you're with me in your Bibles, I want to look at what, what Elijah was really zealous about. And somewhere, if we're not vigilant, any of us can flip or exchange roles from being a servant of God to director of God. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, an interesting statement, which is actually a sign that perhaps you are dissatisfied with God. 
And I wonder to myself, as I was reading it, if Paul was reading this account of Elijah when he wrote to the Galatians, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Literally, Paul is writing to the Galatians and saying to them, let us not want to quit. Let us not want to be disappointed in results. Rather, in the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So here we meet Elijah in the story of his, uh, his return to Jezreel. King Ahab has credited the whole event in Mount Carmel to Elijah and said Elijah has killed all the prophets. He's telling his wife Jezebel. Instead of crediting it to God and instead of a national revival which is what Elijah dreamed of and prayed about Elijah has a contract put out on his life. In verse 1 of 1 Kings 19, it says this, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Jezebel's response to this great moment of, of power demonstrated by God is to put a hit out on Elijah and to send a messenger to tell him that within 24 hours his life is over. Now what was Elijah's dream? Well if you turn back in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18 you'll see in verse 37 he prays there and says this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. And in, in, the, in the offering of this prayer, of course, we, we see that God sends down fire from heaven and demonstrates unequivocally that he is the ultimate God of the universe. But did the people's hearts turn to God? Was there revival in Israel? No, instead of revival in Israel, Jezebel puts out a hit on the prophet so that the word of God is to, is to disappear. I really believe that Paul was reading this and he says, let us not become weary in well-doing because that's exactly what happened to Elijah. The signs that you have become weary in well-doing are well documented here in Elijah's situation. So I want to show you four signs that you might be coming weary in doing good and maybe beyond weary to weary some. You see, idolatry always wears others out around you. You're no longer a refreshing spring, bringing a fullness of God's Spirit. You become an emotional vacuum to all the people around you. And that is the case with Elijah. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 3, the, the sign that you might be becoming weary of doing good or well-doing. Verse 3, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The first sign that you might become weary in well-doing is this, you've become afraid. And perhaps you become afraid, and perhaps Elijah was afraid, 
that maybe God had finally met his match, that he wasn't able to tame Jezebel, or maybe that God won't help. All of us here are gathered and, and online uh, gathered for the most part, I'm sure, believe that God is all-powerful and that God can do whatever he wants and that there's nothing impossible for God. And we pray and we pray and we pray. And God doesn't appear to answer our prayer. And so we start to wonder about God and we realize, well, he could do something because he's all-powerful. So I guess he won't. And sometimes we become discouraged and afraid because God won't do what we expect him to do or want him to do. Or maybe we just think God has moved on. We can't believe Elijah couldn't fathom in his own mind how a society that had become tone deaf to God and that this was going to be an enduring situation where they would stop listening to God was going to be left as they were. Elijah just couldn't come to terms with that. His heart was, was fixed on revival. His heart was fixed on reform. And so are our hearts. We so want God to transform our land. We so want God to bring salvation to family members. And we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed. And it's easy to become discouraged and despondent and weary in our well-doing and wonder if God won't help. Wonder where is God? His prayers for judgment uh, uh, had, had been answered and, and God had, had allowed fire to come down from heaven. And, and, and then, oh, and that's it? That's, that's all that's going to happen? Just a big show? Nobody's going to change? Nobody's heart's going to be any different? Is that all there's, that this is going to amount to? Maybe God can't turn their hearts back again. Maybe he doesn't want to. And so he's afraid. He's afraid now that, well, perhaps God will allow Jezebel to kill him. But note this. The same God who rescued him from Ahab and rescued him from a famine and rescued him from hundreds of Baal prophets and their followers and sent rain upon his prayer and fire from heaven. This is the same God. The same God whom Jezebel must answer to. And so is the same God of Elijah, the same God of us. There's lots of spiritual momentum when we see prayer after prayer being answered. And, and sometimes we can get into an idea that, well, my prayers are always going to be answered the way I hope they will be answered. But what happens when the situation doesn't resolve itself? Serial success spiritually, to an answered prayer can mask or hide idolatry in our lives, which may not show up until God chooses not to answer a prayer the way you hope he will. And that's exactly where Elijah is at this very moment in our story. So, what happens next? It says in the text, he left his servant there, verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I'm not better than my father's. The second sign that you may be despondent or weary in well-doing is that you begin to utter weird, radical, extreme 
ultimatum prayers. I'm a failure. Take my life. Elijah is so disgusted with, literally so disgusted with what's happening in his own country of Israel. And I don't know if you noticed in the text that he migrates to Beersheba in Judah. He leaves the country. Anybody feel like that right now? So disgusted with your country that you feel like leaving it? Surely God is answering prayers somewhere else because he doesn't seem to be answering prayers here. That's how Elijah was feeling. He was so frustrated with the results of his ministry. He goes on to tell the Lord, you know, um, take my life for I am not better than my father's. My ministry success has resulted in nothing better than my forefathers. So you might as well just kill me. This gives us the aha moment in understanding Elijah and his heart. It was all about ministry success. Elijah was frustrated because his ministry had not, had not resulted in, better, in a better situation in Israel. He was frustrated about expectations that he had counted on. Beloved, lurking in our lives, hidden in our lives, that often only surfaces when circumstances get difficult, is the idol of expectations. How we want things versus how things are. So he says to God, I'm done. I've had enough. Here's my re resignation. I'm a failure as a prophet. Just kill me. Well, he's not the first of God's famous prophets who asked God to kill him. Kill. Moses said the same thing in Numbers 11. When the people were complaining, complaining, complaining about manna every day, manna, every day, manna. And Moses said, I can't take this anymore, God. Please, if this is going to be the way it is, just kill me. Have you ever been to that place in your life where things are just so frustrating, so desperate? And as a believer, you know that, that heaven awaits you and you just get to the place where you say to God, God, why don't you just take my life? Many of us here are glad that God didn't answer those prayers. Thankfully, God doesn't answer ridiculous prayers. I'm thankful that God doesn't answer ridiculous prayers. I've offered enough of them. And I'm grateful to God that God chooses to overrule our foolishness. He, re he didn't really want to die. I mean, if he really wanted to die, he could have stayed in Israel and let Jezebel take care of him. Literally what he was saying, think about it this way logically. If we can think about it dispassionately for a few moments, sort of step back from the story and just think this through for a moment. If our lives and our ministry are all about God, okay? If we agree, our lives and our ministry are all about God, then that means that the results of our lives and our ministry are all about God, right? Right? 
Isn't that logic? So if we start complaining about the results and circumstances of our life, aren't we really criticizing God? And that's exactly what Elijah was doing. He might have been saying, oh, you know, my ministry is a failure. You know, take my life. I'm done. I'm no better than my forefathers. But what he was really saying is, God, you're unsuccessful. You're the failure. You haven't been able to produce revival in Israel. So really, you're the failure. And I'm done. I'm resigning. I don't want to serve and work for you anymore. Well, there's a third sign that you might be weary. Keep following along in the story. He says in verse 5, He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb or Choreb for Lynn's sake, the mountain of God. What's the third sign? You make a pilgrimage. If anybody knows what Mount Horeb is, it's the Mount of God. It's Mount Sinai. It's the place where Moses received the law of God. Elijah goes and wanders around in the Negev, in the wilderness, and, and, and happens upon Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And, and he makes this pilgrimage to this place of worship because he had a beef with God. Not to come and worship God, but to complain to God. And, and all of this, after God provides again another skip-the-dishes angel delivery person who shows up and feeds him rather than kills him, God graciously resources this unauthorized pilgrimage. He was not supposed to be leaving Jezreel. And he finds himself at Mount Sinai with a complaint about God, who is, how God is managing the affairs of his people and literally is saying to God, fix this. Fix how you are treating things. Why did you have to Why did you have me do all of this and risk this risky work all to come to nothing? Why, why did you send down a fireball from heaven, this great show, all for nothing? Why did you exterminate all of the Baal prophets all for nothing? Why no revival? Why just apathy? And so we come upon the fourth sign that you may be struggling with disappointment and weariness and well-doing. Starts at verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What's the fourth sign? The fourth sign is you make 
wild exaggerations on how bad things are and how uniquely zealous you are. Now, when um, the Lord asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. It isn't recorded, of course, in the scriptures, but I'm virtually certain the Lord in his own mind was asking the question, really? Really, Elijah? You've been really zealous for me? You've been zealous for the Lord Almighty? Have you been zealous for me or have you really been zealous for the results that you surely wanted me to give you? That's the issue. Are we really zealous for God? You know, in this, in this moment of our lives, in, in all honesty, are we really zealous for the Lord? As, as we look back and think about our attitudes, our behavior, the way we've been approaching this moment, are we really zealous for the Lord or are we really zealous for circumstances we want the Lord to produce? The irony oozes in this text because this elite prophet named Elijah has wandered himself out of the will of God. He hasn't waited on the Lord. He hasn't waited for a word from God. He has been dissatisfied with God and his ways. And literally, he sounds a lot like the audience that he's been preaching to. And he's calling out to God, judge them for their idolatry. And God is literally saying to Elijah, maybe I should be judging you for your idolatry, Elijah. What are you doing here? I didn't call you here. I didn't summon you here. It's not in the will of God that you should be here. You made this choice to wander away. He keeps insisting, I've been zealous for the Lord, God Almighty. Then what are you doing here? Literally, he says to God, you know, I'm the only one left. I'm the only faithful person you've got in all of Israel. <laughs> you know, if I get executed, you'll be sorry because you won't have anybody to minister for you. I'm the only faithful person. We're the only faithful church, Lord. All the other churches are disobeying you. We're the only faithful church because we're the only church who did it this way or that way. I'm the only faithful Christian, Lord, because I'm the only one who did it this way. I'm the only one who did it that way. Really. You're the only one. Let me just summarize all of this for us with the last verses in this text. So God says to Elijah, verse 11, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. 
or a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he repeats, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Why is it that we become discouraged, despondent, weary when circumstances don't go the way we hope they would go, even when they are right motives and right ad, right. Uh, right things. What is it? We easily become guilty of typecasting God. What do I mean by that? Typecasting is when you fit someone into a narrow slot and say, this is who you are. This is who you will always be. This is what you will always be like. This is what you will always do. And Elijah become used to a God to be the certain way he wanted God to be. He was addicted to the dramatic the big show of power. When God rose up this great wind, Elijah's, yes, that's God. And then, and then he discovers, no, God isn't in it. And then there's an earthquake. Yes, that's God. And then God isn't in the earthquake. And then there's fire. Finally, yes, that's God. That's the way my God is. Yeah, fire, rain down fire on them. And God isn't in the fire. And then he hears literally a gentle whisper. And God is in that. We become so used to, uh, this is how God has to save people. This is the type of worship that God wants. This is how God acts. And dare I say, this is the only way we can gather. Everybody else is wrong. We get used to a way of experiencing and encountering and expecting God to act. We get addicted to adrenaline. And we miss the gentle whisper of God. Kyle and Delich in their commentary says, The prophet wanted to reform everything by means of the tempest. It's kind of a Boanerges zeal. When the sons of thunder said to Jesus, Should we nuke them? Rain down fire and brimstone. That's the way you should be acting, Jesus. We idolize a way. We start to idolize a setting. We start to idolize a method. We start to idolize straight line outcomes. I pray, God answers. I pray, God answers exactly the way I pray. And when it doesn't happen, we freak out. 
because we've typecasted God. We expect him to answer this way. And Elijah was losing his value to God as a prophet unless things changed. That's why this whole event took place. Elijah had started to work for his own results rather than the results God wanted. And it subtly creeps up on you, a faithful person of God. Elijah is one of the great prophets of the scriptures. But this is not a good moment for Elijah. This surfaces his very human heart and attitude, his sinful heart and attitude. Wanting to control God, wanting the results he wanted. Have you ever considered that your way may be in the way of God acting? That's idolatry, beloved. So let's have some critical takeaways here. The Lord says to him in verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazal king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that one, of, one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. And Elijah, by the way, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's the critical takeaways, beloved, and we'll, we're finished. One is this. God, what do we learn out of this? God is free. God is free. He calls on us to pray. He calls on us to do, give our best in ministry. But God ultimately is free to act any way he chooses. And God is always at work. While Elijah was griping and losing sleep and complaining that God had not brought revival to Israel, had not answered his prayers, God is sovereignly rearranging the geopolitical landscape. God tells him, hey, by the way, I'm about to change the king of the Arameans. I'm about to change the, the, the king of Israel. I'm about to change the prophet, uh, the key prophet for Israel. I, I, I've, got, I've got a lot of things going on, Elijah. While you're sitting here complaining that I'm not doing anything, I'm choreographing a whole bunch of things. And, you know, I don't know where you're at and how disappointed you are with the way things have been or have shaped up. But if we think that God isn't working, we're mistaken. God is at work and God is always at work. Jesus said, my father is always working, even to today. God is working. We don't need to be discouraged or weary in well-doing. Our God is at work. He is choreographing, reshaping. He is busy at work. Critical takeaway too, fruit will happen. You see what Paul said, don't become weary in well-doing, for we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We can't give up. Fruit will happen, but it will happen in God's way and it will happen in God's time. Don't give up praying for that lost loved one. Don't give up in, in, in your, your idea of, of ministry and in, in your passion for the Lord. Don't give up on any of that. It, it will happen, but it will happen in God's way and in God's time. God is not a programmable device. Is there another way to encounter God 
at work that doesn't involve fear and doesn't involve running and doesn't involve starving and doesn't involve distance and props and enduring despair and discouragement and depression and disappointment. Yes, a gentle whisper. Sometimes God is in a big wind. But sometimes God just wants to get your attention in a gentle whisper. Have you heard him? Do you hear him in ways that you didn't expect? In ways that are unusual from the usual ways you encounter God? Thirdly, God's mission is never endangered or hostage to human agency. Note this. It was after the gentle whisper that Elijah was able to hear the ongoing plans of God for the future. Note that. Note that. It was not until Elijah listened to the gentle whisper of God that he actually was entitled to hear the future plans of God. The Arameans are getting new leadership. The house of Ahab is on the way out. Elijah's successor is already in sight. Because by the way, there's always another replacement for, you, for we drips in a bucket. Judgment and justice are already pre-programmed. And 7,000 people aren't kissing idols. More than just you. There's more churches than just Calvary that are faithful to the Lord. Amen? There's more ways of encountering and meeting God than just the way we do things. Amen? So be careful, beloved. Be very, very careful. That in your so-called zeal for God, you don't begin to actually miss out on seeing and encountering the very reality of God you so long to experience. He's not yours to program and control. And I think there's a fair bit of that around at this moment and hopefully being corrected. God is not ours to program and control. And God is not hostage to things being exactly the way we think they should be in order for him to work. Elijah needed to get Elijah out of the way. Rick needs to get Rick out of the way. You need to get you out of the way so you can hear the gentle whisper of God. Fear and discouragement and relational strain with God, wanting to quit, are all signs that Elijah's zeal had turned inward rather than upward. And there are signs in your and my life as well. Fear, discouragement, relational strain with God. If God's going to be that way, I'm not interested. If God is not going to answer my prayer, then, then forget Him. Wanting to quit. They're all signs that our zeal has really turned inward and it's not upward. And God had to let him wander over 600 kilometers to get his eyes back on the real prize. The real prize is not judgment. The real prize is not revival. The real prize is not even zeal for ministry. 
The real prize is the Lord God Almighty. The real prize is Jesus, not the things about Jesus. And we must be careful to keep our eyes on the real prize, no matter what. Friend, are, are you finding yourself in this moment, discouraged with God, frustrated? He hasn't been answering your prayers. Things aren't going the way you hoped they would go. Circumstances aren't the way you wanted them to be. Frustrated with God? In danger of being unusable by God? Why are you here? Susan, why are you here, Sally? Why are you here, Fred? Why are you here, Jack? Why are you here, Bill? Why are you here, Rick? Why? You should be there. I never told you to come here. What idols in the way of you hearing God whisper right where you are? And in the very circumstances he's allowed to take place in your life. If you can't hear the whisper, you won't be able to hear the next set of instructions. And if you've already decided how things should be, you aren't ready to hear how things are to be. So what does God say to Elijah? What is God saying to you and me today? Go back the way you came. That's what he says to him. Go back the way you came. Redo. Start again. You aren't supposed to be here. Go back. Go back to where you're supposed to be. Redo your steps. Go back to where when God was really God to you. No matter what. No matter what the circumstances. And there you hear the gentle whisper of God. And the further instructions for your life. God bless you this morning. I trust you take this to heart. I do believe this is one of the, the central and most important lessons in all of the Elijah stories. Is chasing idolatry out of our lives that is subtle, is insidious, and will take us away from God. While we think we're serving him, while we think we're doing all the right things, while we think we're wanting all the right things, that's the problem. It's all the things instead of God. Make sure that it's God and God alone, that you're zealous for the Lord God Almighty, Jesus, the Son of the living God. Father, thank you so much for your word to us today. I pray that you will settle it in our hearts. Help us to uh, fix our lives and our hopes, our dreams, everything, Lord, on you and you alone, not on circumstances, not even on ministry dreams, but on you, Lord, and who you are, I pray, that we may be usable to the sovereign God. For I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.